is Rock and Roll Grad School with your hosts, Heidi Hedquist and Luke Poland. Hello, kitties. I'm, I mean, shocked. I can... I'm shocked we're alive today, frankly. I know, right? It's a um, miracle. It really is. So there's all this stuff I wanted to talk about. I'm going to save it all for a time when... Uh, the gods are in our favor exactly um today we talked to kenny lee lewis from Mm -hmm. the great steve miller band and um you know listening back to it he's a he's a fascinating guy he's got a lot of great stories and um yeah i feel like this time of year this post fourth of july time of year is the perfect time to dig out old records and start listening to things you haven't heard in a while true but i feel like i mean steve miller band at least in detroit i mean one everybody always like it's one of the most universally beloved bands there is but summertime in detroit you got your eddie money sure miller band right well, I mean, one will rock you and one will give you two tickets to paradise. I mean, you can't lose. You can't. You're in paradise and you've been rocked. So there you go. Everyone wins. I mean, one may take your money and run, but... Mm, that's true. Well, as long as you know a, a detective down in Texas, you'll be fine. True. You can hop on a big old jet airliner. So one of the things that I think is super interesting about your body of work is your uh, the work that you did in the mid early seventies mid seventies in, in guitar research. Oh wow! And okay, yeah, we can talk about I that. S- I saw a bio that said in parts of the guitar that are still in use today. What exactly were you working on? Is this all patent pending type stuff or? Um, you're are you talking about Schechter? Uh, Are you talking about, because in the mid-70s, yes, I was Schechter, just yes. up, well, I, well, actually, yeah, I'm 74, 75, I was moving with Schechter. Schechter was a, um, is that what you were, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Okay, if, are you a guitar player, or do you know any guitar players? I I, I am, yes, but I'm not. Okay, a, not that have you ever heard of Schechter guitars? It doesn't ring a bell. I bet if I saw one, I'd be like... T-E-R. It's a very big company. If you go into Guitar Center or any of these big companies like Sam Ash, there'll be quite a few of their instruments. You'd know what you saw. It was an American company. It started in the Valley, in the San Fernando Valley. And I was at the time working in a guitar amplifier corporation from 74 through 75. It was called Delta. And it was a that was sort of like an experimental company. Uh, my neighbor, that was a, a friend of mine, he he uh, got me a job there. I was just coming out the road. My first tour, I was 19 years old. I turned 19 on my first tour, and uh, <laughs> I came back to town with a, a, a lady, lady friend. And we moved in together, and uh, it was my first living in love. And uh, she was. Uh, you know, I, I, she wanted to come to LA real bad. I kind of told her, I said, well, you know, I'm a musician. I, I work in the clubs and, you know, I work in music stores and, you know, and I get, I get sessions. Of course, you know, I kind of built it up a little bit. So when we got back to town, you know, I had some money saved up from my tour, but you know, there wasn't a lot of work coming in. So she was like, 
I thought you said you were going to be working all the time. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, you got a first taste of being with like a wannabe, you know, rock and roller. Pretty funny. Right. But uh, our neighbor took a liking to our dog. We had gotten a little puppy and uh, he lived right next door and he, he became friends and he took me in and, uh, you know, showed me his record collection and he had, he had really good weed and everything. And it was, he was a nice cat and he was the designer at a guitar amplifier corporation. And he got me a job there, uh, stuffing circuit boards. And then eventually I worked my way up to being quality control manager because I had electronic experience from school and stuff. And from that job, a gentleman walked in one day who came in with a, uh, a guitar, a guitar pickup assembly that was all put into one pick card. It was all wired and everything. Mm -hmm. And this was Dave Schechter. He was just a, a, a funny cat. He had been working at Red Roads uh, in Hollywood. They all came, came out from Boston originally. Red Roads, he and Skunk Baxter, uh, Jeff Skunk Baxter, mm -hmm. were all friends in Boston. So they all kind of knew each other. And so Dave came in with this assembly. And the guys that had invested in this amp company could see that the amp company was kind of going... We weren't really getting very good quality control on our amps, and uh, nobody was really getting into them. And uh, they had come from Acoustic and JBL, the guys that were involved with that company. And uh, they saw this pickup assembly, and they went, wow, this is really great, because Fender guitars at that time were making inferior instruments. And if you just took this assembly and just dropped it in and soldered it right to the jack, it was like an immediate fix to any kind of Fender Stratocaster. So hmm. they immediately started funneling some of the investment money into this guitar amplifier company, into this guitar pickup company, as they could see the guitar amp company wasn't going to probably fly like they'd hoped. And so we started, I, I became the first employee with Dave Schechter, and we hand-wired pickups with a Cox slot car <laughs> controller, you know, with cotton. We all did it by hand. We had a Bunsen burner we made our lunch on, you know. And we were just in this cold M1 shop, and uh, he liked blues. So he would blast Elmore James all day long while I'm sitting there, you know, trying to, like, you know, wind these pickups and stuff. And, uh, you know, we had, like, a, a, magnif a magnetizer because we were using these steel slugs and, you know, we like magnetize these pickups and everything. And then we'd assemble it all, tighten it up, solder it, put it in a box, ship it out. And we started selling those like crazy. And so then we started selling the parts that were in that assembly. And then we started selling more parts. And then we started selling wood. We started getting wood. So we started selling bodies. Uh, we didn't have a pin router that was of any very good. But then with the money that was made, from a few first assemblies, he got himself a pin router and rebuilt it. And even though it wasn't a, a cat uh, computer one, we were making some pretty good bodies and necks after a while. And after a while, we became the very first parts company in America to sell guitar parts for the electric guitar, specifically, you know, Fender products at first. Uh, but those were the ones that everybody was playing at the time. So that was Schechter. And I started with Dave Schechter. And eventually the company got bought and sold a couple of times. It became a very big company. They're made in Korea now. But um, it was it was great. When the American ones that we were first making were very good quality and they were kind of spendy. Our first guys that were using them were uh, Pete Townsend of The Who. Uh, we had um, Dave Jenkins from Pablo Cruz. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of some other guys, but I got some studio musicians like Tim Pierce and 
um, some other really good guys, Jack Sonny. I mean, these were all guys that were playing with Dire Straits and other people. And, and then eventually, um, I ended up, you know, you know, becoming a studio musician after meeting my wife, who I met from that factory and became her bass player. And she, her name was Diane Steinberg, and she had a record deal already on Atlantic. She hired me as a bass player. We started writing songs. We did a record on ABC together as co-writers. And then I got into the studio scene. Next thing I know, I'm doing all these sessions. So I just kind of backed out of the uh, guitar pickup company <laughs> and uh, started doing a lot more work in sessions and playing. So that was my experience at that point uh, with that. If that. Does that answer your question? Oh, and then some. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, so that's how I got my start doing that. Because, you know, you have to do just about everything in the music business in order to survive. You can't just play. You know, you have to you have to invent, you have to sell, you have to instruct, you know, uh, you have to be a testimony, you have to be a uh, developer, you know, uh, and then you have to be a salesman. You have yeah. to go out and sell yeah. this stuff, you know, so right. I've done that, too. I've been a manager at guitar centers and I've been all kinds of stuff. But you have to do all that stuff. Otherwise, you're not going to make it in the music business because it ain't about just playing. You got to write, you got to produce, you got to publish, you got to invent, you got to. I mean, it's just, it never ends. I mean, I even played a funeral one time with a, uh, uh, with a friend of mine, uh, acoustic guitar and a melodica, you know, because they didn't have any electricity in this part of this old mortuary. You know? oh. And, you know, of course, we were just knuckleheads, you know, high as a kite, you know. Well, funny. Yeah. You'd have to be at a funeral. <laughs> a funeral. <laughs> Try to make a living, you know. For sure. Oh, and I thought you were going to say you were sitting there freezing soldering things using a Bunsen burner, eat your lunch and be like, there's got to be an easier way. So I got into rock and roll. I thought that was going to be the path. I don't recommend so. it to anyone. It's a tough business. Yeah. <laughs> but you've never so, left it. You've lo you love it. You've never left it. I do. And, and it's been, it's been a really great uh, journey. And uh, uh, I've been just putting some videos up the last couple of days. So when I, I, I was in Steve Miller from 82 to 87 and then he went out and he did a jazz album and he had a different rhythm section for a while. But then his greatest hits came out. He started selling a lot more stuff. And he asked me to come back in and do the greatest hits and get back into the rock part. And so in 93, my first gig coming back in the band was at Hollywood Bowl on Earth Day with Paul McCartney. And there was a video that was shot that night that I had on a VHS that I just transferred last night. Yes. For some reason, of you sweating profusely, it shows me and Diane, awesome. or Diane and I, I should say, excuse me, Diane and I being called up on stage by Paul because she was Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds in the Sgt. Pepper movie. So Paul already right. knew her. And I had just met Paul earlier that evening in the green room because he and Steve are friends. And at the end of the show, he invited Diane and I were just watching the show on the side of the stage. And he says, uh, Diane and Kenny, come, come on out and help me sing Hey Jude to end the night. You know, we're like, <laughs> what? And so we start walking out, and then he goes, and Ringo, and Steve Miller, and everybody. And so he's bringing everybody, and we come to the center of the stage, and that's right when the news company, the news network, took the shot of us singing with Ringo and Paul, Hey Jude. And I just put up photos, and I just put up videos of that today. Since then, since 1993. Isn't that funny? Fantastic. So that was like the first, my first Beatles you know, experience, so that was kind of fun. But that was my first gig coming back with Steve after, of course, after we already had the big Abracadabra album and all that stuff. But that was coming back in 93. And so that was kind of a cool way to start yeah. back with Steve. <laughs> yeah. If you had to. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It was an unplugged set too. We we did everything on acoustic guitar. It wasn't an electric set, so it was kind of fun. So how did you and Steve Miller originally cross paths? Was it from your session work? Uh, I was doing recording session work and I got into a studio in the Valley called Fidelity. And it was owned by a guy named Artie Rip, who used to manage Billy Joel. And he was the guy that would famously took him to the cleaners, you know, took all his money. Mm -hmm. uh, and he had this studio. And so I had just gotten a session there one day and the engineer liked my bass playing. I was a you know, studio bass player at the time. And then he uh, recommended me to a couple other clients there at that studio. Uh, and Gary Malibur was a drummer who lived in the neighborhood who was also doing sessions there. And he liked my bass playing. And he invited me to meet this guy, Gerard McMahon, who was a writer on, on that building. They also had a publishing company in the back where April Blackwood with a guy named Erwin Mazur. And he was managing and, and handling the publishing for Gerard. And so we, they auditioned me, they liked me. I ended up playing bass and co-writing on this album called Gerard McMahon and Kid Lightning. And Gary and I became songwriting partners through the thing. And we eventually, after doing two records, Gerard realized we weren't gonna get rich being sidemen with this guy. So we decided to go for our own record deal. And Gary and I and a guy named John Massaro, who was also in the band, started writing songs. And we came up with eight masters that we did in Gary's garage. Uh, and they sounded really good. We recorded them on an 80-8 TAC half-inch 15 IPS machine with DBX, which was the same, same machine that the Eurythmics used or these dreams are made for them. <laughs> the same machine. So we sent, uh, we were in there working on the stuff one day, getting ready to go for our own record deal. And Steve Miller calls Gary and he'd come, kind of come off a slump and he wasn't writing much. And he needed a bunch of songs to finish a record for Christmas at Capitol. And so Gary comes in after the conversation, says to me and Johnny, he goes, you know, hey, Steve called. He wants to know if we have any material. Do you want me to give him our demo? And we all went, yeah, sure, why not? You know, so we gave him eight songs, thinking he might record maybe a song, maybe two. You know, we didn't realize he wanted all eight of them. And not only did he want all eight of them, but he wanted the masters. So he brought a truck over to Gary's house, a two-inch machine from Capitol. We transferred our masters to two-inch tape. He took them to Capitol, and that became the Abracadabra album, along with two old tracks that he had left over from the Circle of Love album. Uh, one of which was called Macho Children, which had terrible lyrics, but the groove was really cool. Had this really cool little pogo beat, you know. And we told him, well, you just need some new lyrics for this. So he, Steve and I were supposed to get together and try to write lyrics for it, but he ended up writing them on his own. In 20 minutes, after seeing Diana Ross in a celebrity ski uh trip or uh, it was like a benefit up in sun valley where steve had just bought a condo a ski and ski out condo so he was invited to do a celebrity ski thing he was so excited to see uh you know diana ross because he grew up in that era you know in fact i think he'd mm -hmm. done uh, a show on hullabaloo in 65 wow. awesome. with, the, with the i think it was the the, the four tops oh. the supremes and a band he was in called the miller goldberg blues band oh. so he of <laughs> diana ross he got enamored with her. He thought about black paintings and an angel's face and all that stuff. And he wrote these lyrics thinking about Diana Ross. He came in and he goes, how about Abracadabra? I want to reach out and grab you. <laughs> and we went, whoa. All right. <laughs> so he sang a demo of it. And we just went, that's it, man. That's the stuff. You know, so we worked on the guitar solo together and, and uh, put that out. And that became the first single. But Capital at that time was heavily involved with 
unfortunately, payola radio promotion. And they wanted Steve to pay cash to some guy to get us on the radio. And Steve said, I never had to do that before. I'm not doing that. So we didn't do it. And so the record bombed. So Abracadabra came out in the United States and it, no single, it just bombed. My my song called Keeps Me Wondering Why was the very first song on the album. And so DJs got the album and they just kind of put that one on and went like, well, let's see what this sounds like. And it got some airplay. So it was kind of fun. I mean, my my first time I ever had like a, a, a song on the radio like that. And yeah. uh, But unfortunately, it just bombed out. So fortunately, just coincidentally, his lawyer had negotiated a deal, I think the year before, where Capital only owned interests of the United States and Canada. And the other part of his distribution deal was a label out of Amsterdam called Polygram Mercury. They got the album, they heard Abracadabra, and they flipped out. Because it sounded kind of European, because this is 80s now. Yeah. 1980. Or 80, it was right at the end of 81, beginning of 82. Anyway, uh, so they're the ones that made it hit, and they didn't need any payola. It is like art for art's sake. Wow, what a concept, right? Right. So, you know, we get this big hit in Europe, and all of a sudden we cancel our U.S. tour. We go over to Europe. becomes number one. And then all of a sudden the U.S., of course, Capitol Records now has got their tail between their legs. They go, okay, I guess we got to promote this now. And because they put it out, and it went number one almost three times in a row consecutively. So it was these, one of these songs you just could not kill with a stick. So that was how I met Steve, and that's how the hall that came about. Oh, and then he just invited me to join the band. I was doing studio work, and one day when we were oh, finishing that the yeah. album, he just called me up and says, hey, you're all over this record. You're writing on it. You're playing on a guitar and bass. Why don't you just come out and help me support this record? I didn't have to audition or anything. I just had to make the decision to leave my studio career behind and go out with him. And in hindsight, it was actually probably a pretty good decision, even though I – completely destroyed most of my client base, you know, of studio musicians work. So uh, I never was able to recover that when I came back off that tour. Oh, but you you got to, yeah, you got to tour. Good trade. Yeah. It seems like a good, I'm like trying to like justify it all in my mind. Like, which was the right decision. I think you made the right decision. What do I know? But it certainly sounds way more fun. Right. Well, in hindsight, over the over time, very little studio work was available to very few people, and playing live was a much more lucrative business. And as you can see, in the last couple of years, of course, pandemic withstanding, a lot of the classic rock acts don't have any hit records because, after all, they're classic rock. You can't put out new material because it's not classic, you know. And there's no radio station that'll play old guys' new material, you know. There's no format for that, you know. So. You just have to go out and just play the old hits. If you put out a new record, eh, you might get some people buying it, but it ain't going to be like it was in the old days. So live music and live concerts for classic rock acts is really a pretty lucrative business. And that was how we've been making our money up until last year. Well, yeah, and you guys... Over a year now. I mean, I will tell you, I have seen you play several times in Detroit and... Oh, Pine Up? Yep, Pine Up. Yep. And yep. your fans are, I mean, they That's are. That's a very special place for Steve. I don't know why. It, Probably because it's very blue collar. And, yeah. Oh, you know. no, we are rabid up here for you guys. And I mean, yeah. right, Michigan, Michigan in general, it's kind of like a, they like white rock. You know, they don't 
they're not real big on R&B and stuff. Although, of course, you know, Eight Mile came out of there. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you know, Bob Seger's from there. Steve's from there. The Detroit Wheels, MC5. Right. You know, Motown was the candy pop part of Detroit, so which was earlier. Oh, right. But then there was this whole generation of hardcore blue collar you know, white folks that just liked Steve's music because this was happy. It was simple. It had blues bass, but it was, it sounded more like the beach boys doing the blues, you know, <laughs> cause that's what Steve does. He, he bring, he takes the minor third and he takes it up to the major third. So it's all happy sounding. And then you get all happy. Ah, I'm happy, you know, and that's kind of what his music does. It makes people feel happy. And then he had good lyrics and, and then he had really good arrangements. And that was part of his genius was, uh, bringing all these people and writers together and producing it in such a way to where it, it, you know, became ear candy. And uh, that's what he, you know, and the greatest hits album that you hear today, 74 through 78 is really, uh, you can't, uh, you can't kill it. And Abracadabra is not even on that record, but surprisingly that's, that's actually yeah. prior to Abracadabra. Right. And it is, it's like, again, everybody owns that. CD and it is yeah. on constant rotation. It's like an American pastime, right? It's like if you don't have. It was one of the first actual CDs I bought. I mean, I've had a record collection, all these other things, but when I was in high school, that was what the, I had to have it on CD because that's yeah. what you do. I would have been so uncool. Yeah, no one would have wanted to shake my tree. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind you. Never mind. Anyway. Does it get tired? Do you get tired of playing some of these songs or is it just the reward of seeing these people night after night, just embrace you, the band Steve with such fervor that, you know, Hey, we'll play the Joker again. If everyone gets up and dances like that. Well, Steve went through a period in the uh, mid nineties, I would say where he kind of got like what you say, he got kind of jaded on his own catalog and he started putting in, you know, album cuts, more blues songs, um, you know, obscure stuff. He, we even did like doo-wop and weird stuff. I mean, he did, he was just trying to relive his childhood, you know, which was kind of late 40s, early 50s to start with. And then it went from there. His first band at a, at, in high school was in 1956. And uh, that was with Boss Gags in Dallas. And uh, they were, you know, one of the first rock bands around that area that would just be available to do, you know, dances and, you know, sock hops and sorority and fraternity parties, whatever, church gigs. And uh, there wasn't a lot of bands locally that were doing it. You know, most of them were in New York. Uh, some, of them, some of them were in uh, Los Angeles, you know, New York, Los Angeles, maybe Chicago, maybe maybe Atlanta. But, you know, in Dallas, it was mostly a blues kind of a thing. And uh, he he uh, he was able to uh, grow up in a time when like, well, Les Paul, you know, is his godfather and right. and was on capital. So he was actually a mentor for Steve business wise on how to handle capital because they were kind of notorious for, you know, you know, taking money out under the under, you know, I won't say anything, but I mean, it was. He had to audit them every two years, and he'd win. <laughs> every time he'd win, so you, and we'd all get that. that's all you need we'd to say. Yeah. yeah. So it's just a it's just a game you play with these guys. That's why that's why the conventional big label now 
because they don't control the pressing vinyl machines anymore, which was something that we didn't have at home to do. Because they don't have that anymore, they just kind of got washed out, you know, because they, they were no longer this draconian, you know, entity that controlled everything, you know. So now you just go on the Internet and you just stick it up on Instagram and you're ready to rock, you know. And uh, so anyway, to answer your question, uh, Steve grew up around a lot of that older style music. I mean, one of his favorite vocalists is Sarah Vaughn, of all people, you know. I mean, you're not a rock and roller and dig Sarah Vaughn. Uh, no. But Steve's a unique person because he came from another era. And he came out to, to the you know West Coast not wanting to be a flower child, but it was just going on at the Fillmore. And he had this blues band that he put together in Chicago, and they came out and they started playing the Fillmore. And the hippies loved it because they can really play. They could really play a shuffle. They could play their instruments. They could do solos and not fall over, you know, stone out of their mind. You know, and it was like, because they were drinkers, those guys. And uh, so they got signed at the same time as Santana, Quicksilver, Grateful Dead, you know, Jefferson Airplane. They all got signed, I think, like in the same week. A whole bunch of labels came up from L.A. And they, I mean, they were all suits. You know, they didn't know what they were listening to. They're going, yeah, I guess the kids really like this flower stuff. We ought to just sign them all. <laughs> And see what happens. That's kind of what they did. It was, it was, it was fun. Mm-hmm. And he was one of those bands. He was just the right place at the right time. So he has a really interesting uh, discography up until about his fifth album, which was very flower power, very revolutionary, lots of conceptual music. Uh, first two albums recorded in London. He was Glenn Johns at Olympic. I mean, he had a very English kind of psychedelic thing going on. You know, you could put the headphones on and get high and <laughs> trip out. But when The Joker came out, he was kind of desperate for a hit. It was his last record on a seven-album deal, and he just threw that album together real fast. And that song, he just kind of threw it together. He didn't even know what he was doing. And so it became his biggest song of all time, and he's had to kind of learn how to embrace that because he just didn't even think that it was going to even be that big a deal, you know. He just kind of threw mm-hmm. it together. He's not, he's not as proud of that song as he is other things. Uh, like Fly Like an Eagle, he's more proud of, obviously. It's, it's it got a little more message. It's really interesting. Wait, Slayer. In fact, that was the first record I heard after that first golden era. Because when The Joker came out, I was on the road playing in the rock band at this band when I was 19, turned 19 on. And I didn't like it. I was like, oh, he's selling out to Cat Call and the Hooks. And where's the revolution? You know, I mean, come on. We're supposed to be, you know, like saving the planet. You know, it's like. He's just talking about really love your peaches. You know, woo, woo, you know it's like, yeah. you know, I was just like, I, I stopped listening to him. And so when I heard Fly Like an Eagle years later, that's when I went like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. That's got a great group. And it crossed over into Black R&B, which at that time I was doing a lot of. Uh, my wife being from Detroit and Memphis and being uh, multiracial, she's, uh, she's an R&B person. And so is her mother. And she was, she was a famous DJ on uh, – uh, WJLB in Detroit and WDIA in Memphis. So I grew up with that in, in my in my background. So I kind of started getting into Steve again. So I'm kind of going on the tangent here, but to answer your question, Steve in the mid-90s got to a point where he decided that he wanted to start abandoning some of his hits. We even tried to go out and do one tour where it was just nothing but blues songs. It was, it was, it was Bill Steve Miller Band because originally the first album, if you see the first album, Children of the Future, the name of the band is the Steve Miller Blues Band. That's the name of the band. He dropped the blues after the Flower Power thing started getting going. And he uh, he just wanted to go back to it. So we tried touring 
<laughs> doing just blues. And man, I mean, the rotten vegetables were flying. Oh, no. <laughs> so he got to a point where he realized that he couldn't fight City Hall, which, of course, is the, 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 the fan base. And he realized right. that he had a, a golden goose nest egg that he just had to sit down. In fact, I think his father-in-law sat him down, who's a businessman, and said, Steve, you got to understand, at this point, these songs don't belong to you anymore. They're not yours. They're not your kids. You know, you've you got to let that go. These belong to the world now. And your, your job is to just to go out and just give them what they want and bring them joy because who else can do this? Like, but you with these songs, bring the joy to the people. And, and, and just as you get paid for it, just bless that. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't get into your head about it. You know, just, just, just go out and do it, you know? And so I saw a turn in him and that's when he, he just kind of, God, can you please, he just, he just turned to me one day and went like, can you believe people are, I mean, we were just sitting there watching the crowd coming into like a big shed or something. He just went, can you believe people are actually showing up to hear this old stuff like this? I goes, I believe he couldn't believe it himself. Mm -hmm. I just, and I went, yeah, I believe it. You know, we're a delivery system. We're a tribute act that happens to have a lead singer by the name of Steve Miller. That's what we have. We're basically a tribute mm -hmm. act that goes out and does the Steve Miller catalog. And you just happen to be the singer, but you could put another singer in that slot. And it would still fly because his art precedes him. The songs are bigger than the man. And that very rarely happens with a rock and roll band. Usually Mick Jagger's the image and, you know, Jimmy Page. And, you know, you got Robert Plant screaming and, you know, you, you can see them visually, you know. Steve can walk mm -hmm. through the crowd before the set and nobody knows who he is. I don't believe that. That's true. Put on some sunglasses walk through the crowd. Nobody knows who he is. Uh, John Fogarty, he can do that too. Nobody knows who it is. The reason being is they never acted. They didn't do a lot of interviews. They never had any scandals or divorces or drug cases that were a big deal. They never were publicized. So they are able to just go to a mall and disappear, you know, while we're on the road. It's funny. You know, he always used to say, you know, I just go into a mall with my sunglasses. I just walk around, bum around. Nobody knows who I am. But that's because his catalog and his songs are so much a part of the American fabric, which is what you were talking about. So, yes, there was a point in time when he was tired of playing them. Now, there's some songs that aren't my favorites that I play in the show that I could just you know, could take them or leave them. <laughs> but there's others that I really like seeing the audience's response on, and that is electrifying. Uh, and you just don't take that for granted. You just have to go, these people are going nuts. We need to give this to them and let them live in that space for a moment. And we can't sit there and go like, yeah, but we'd rather be playing bebop. Or we'd rather be playing some old right. blues song that Robert Chanson wrote. You know, it's like, you can't mm -hmm. make that decision. The audience paid big money to come hear those songs that were signposts on the road of the tapestry of their life. And those were, those really mean a lot to them, you know. When they have, you know, when they had their first kid, their first, their first date, uh, their first divorce, <laughs> you know, uh, when their brother died, you know, when they got back from Vietnam or, you know, it's all kinds of signposts. It's like each song represents something to someone that we can't even conceive. So we have to get out of our head about it and just go, okay, we'll just do it. No problem. And so that's you, what we do now. We just, we're a delivery system for the catalog. You mentioned it. So I feel like we need to ask it. 
what are some of the ones that you still love to play that just well, like I said, every time. Eagle is one of my favorites. I used to get a guitar solo on that when I was his guitar player. I was his guitar player for 28 years. And then in 2010, I switched over to bass. We had a, an accident happen with our bass friend. I had to fill in. And they ended up liking my bass playing so much. They said, you're going to stay on bass. We'll get another guitar player. And I went, oh, okay. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you get from I used to get a solo on, on, on guitar on Flower Eagle. If you go to my website, KennyLeeLewis.com, when you come onto the site, the very first thing you're going to hear is that solo that I used to do with uh, on Flower Like an Eagle. Uh, but um, I like that one. Of course, the Joker is it's just iconic, and <laughs> the audience is just so electrified. How could you not enjoy watching people just having pure joy, you know, that you're – giving them a platform to sit that joy on, you know, it's, it's, it's just a great feeling. Of course, that song has a baseline. It's very iconic with this song. Yeah. Um, I enjoy, um, there's a song we do called make the world turn around that I like that. I actually played bass on, on the record. That was off the 20th century. album. not a big hit, but I really enjoy it. Um, take the money and runs fun. It's really, it's a hoot. Jungle love is fun too, but jungle love is kind of silly so you have to get into a silly mindset when you when you're doing it. You have to immediately switch a switch on and go. Okay, now we're a bunch of cartoon characters. Let's run around the stage and act like fools, you know, on this song that was written by the guitar player that I replaced, uh, Greg Douglas, uh, who was on the the Fly Like an Eagle tour, and uh, and his old bass player Lonnie Turner. They wrote that song. So Steve had to learn that song and learn how to get into it. And it's hard for Steve sometimes to get excited about the ones he didn't write. Uh, Jet Airliner was not written by Steve. That was written by Paul Pena. Uh, so, but he's kind of made it his own now. So, uh, and Jet Airliner is fun too. That's fun. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those, those are all fun. Um, Swing Town's kind of fun. It's an interesting piece because it's pretty short and it's layered a certain way to where it builds and comes down, builds and comes down. And it, uh, it's just an interesting arrangement. I, I like that. Um, but there's some others that, yeah, I can take them on. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, so now what are the ones you But hate? I don't get tired of uh, <laughs> I, There's two words that come to mind. Direct deposit. <laughs> right. That's <laughs> like how that works. <laughs> that kind of makes all the songs really cool. Every you know? song's yeah. great. <laughs> what key do you want this in? Perfect. Let's oh, go. Wow. Well, that is one of the... It's, so, it's so fascinating. It is one of the things like the, like you said. It's 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 such your his music, your music is such the great unifier of the generations too. Yes. It's that's the other thing that you see is just all these different age groups all at, taking ownership as if it's their music. It's not right. that they like their parents' music. It's their music, and everyone's just owning it together. Right. And the phenomenon that happened in 1987 which was when I left the band for a while. I left the band for six years while he went out to promote this jazz album that I didn't play on. Uh, is that that year, the greatest hits came out on the compact disc. Mm. The compact disc. Yes. <laughs> you know, and what happened was a whole new generation of college kids who were kind of tech people bought the greatest hits on CD. And the next thing we knew, we had a whole new generation of younger people that like the record as much as their parents did, yeah. you know? So then we mm-hmm. had it kind of like dovetailing into different generations as time went on. So that was a phenomenon that even Steve could, he just couldn't, un- he, 
He couldn't understand it. He's going, God, we got, we got kids out here that are 20 that know all the words, you know. You know, it was crazy. And so that was an interesting, that was like near, that was somewhere in the beginning of the 90s. Yeah. Yep. Oh, 90, yeah. when I came back. That's when that, and then Grateful Dead, you know, Jerry passed. And then we inherited a, a lot of his audience. And so, mm -hmm. because we were kind of jam bandy a little bit, you know. Um, we don't have any pre-recorded tracks. We sing everything live. We play everything live. Uh, we're a real rock band. And then Steve can change the set throughout the night. He might not stay with the set list. He might just start playing something and go, what about this guy? He'll start playing the intro. We'll just play it. Uh, another person who does that is Carlos Santana. When you go on the stage with Carlos, he doesn't have a set list. You just have to kind of know his material. And he might go into, you know, while my guitar gently weeps right after Oye Komova. Or he might do Time After Time by, by Cindy Lauper. You know, that okay. it's intended to do that song. You know, he just likes the song, you know. So you have to be on your toes and it's it's all spontaneous. So we got that that the deadhead bunch and they were all showing up, you know, doing the acid dancing and everything. And then mm -hmm. uh and then that went into a whole other bunch of people because we took a big break, like I said, from two thousand one, two thousand four. And then when we came back, then classic rock baby boomers, you know, my age group, their kids were all gone. And they wanted to relive their childhood again. They didn't want to sit at home and watch 5.1 sound on a big screen. They wanted to go out and smoke a dube and, and, you know, sit in the front row because they could afford it now. And their kids were gone and they just wanted to, you know, so now we have all these, you know, gray haired 1960s people showing up along with the 20 year olds that were there from the college. And so we had all these people, you know, and it was just the craziest thing. And so at that point, that's when Steve really just said, you know what? We're just going to do this till we drop, and that's it, you know. Well, it's just a testament, I think, to those songs. You know, if if it's a well written song, if it's indestructible, that that's always going to be a good song. Yeah. You know, and I sort like the the folks you've written for over the years too, where it's they're all that, outcasting for Steve's voice was a very interesting part of that because his voice mm -hmm. is really unique it's very it's i've never met another singer like him he except for maybe in like a frankie valley or a tom jones where their instrument is just so powerful and their lung capacity is so powerful that they can control it in such a way to where they're just like this incredible instrument and it really translates mm -hmm. well to the microphone and that was a big part of it too not his face not his persona but the sound of his voice was very tenor and uplifting and he sings a little sharp he sings just a tad sharp and i've noticed over the years of all the hit singers i've noticed they've had big hit records a lot of them sing a little sharp it's a very bright sound and it's uplifting and hmm. it's not in tune but it's okay if you're flat it's a drag <laughs> but if you're a little bit sharp it's a good thing and that's what he that's what his style is like interesting hmm. yeah if you're gonna screw up go yeah, up just was blessed. He was blessed with one of those one of those voices. And of course, he smoked cigarettes for many years. He stopped doing that, but now he's smoking cigars. But for whatever reason, <laughs> it hasn't hurt his uh, vocal cords. He seems to be still doing fine. We we do the songs in the original keys as the records. Wow! Who does that? Nobody at Nobody does that, right? Yeah. You know, he's still singing the same key. Easy.
information on Kenny, you can check him out on his website, KennyLeeLewis.com. You can check us out on all the various socials. Be sure to visit our website at rockandrollgradschool.com. And don't forget to leave us a review. Today's show is produced by myself and Heidi Hegquist. Our reluctant producers are John Sauvet and Sandy Stone. Our willing producers are Rachel Allen and Randy Jeanette. Our intern is Zach Jackson. This one's for Philippe. Thank you, good night, and may all your favorite bands stay together. So keep on rocking me, baby.